The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, round three of the season and guess who's on top? While Pep goes under the knife, City don't with the blades to move into first place. Elsewhere, it's Omar Darwin and Van Dyke doing his best Mary Earps in the big game at St James's. More Luton and Sterling than a Tory PPE contract in the Friday night game. And a big Kaladzic as the bottom two collide at Goodison. A kaleidoscope of football happenings in this Totally Football Show. Hello everyone, it's Sunday evening, 27th of August, and here we are basking in the warm afterglow of the weekend's Premier League action. Tim Spears here, gazing happily up at the ceiling. John McKenzie lighting a cigarette. And Daniel Storey, watching it all from his laptop. Hello to you all. Hey Daniel. Hi James, Hi. How, are you? how are you? I'm well. Tim, how was it for you? It was great. Yep. I enjoyed it all. Excellent, me too. It was an extraordinary weekend in many ways, a, a weekend which took our expectations and, and laughed in their face, John McKenzie. Yeah, I don't know if I had the huge expectations from this weekend of Did you of, not? Of that Brighton, for example, would do a number on West Ham or that teams who were facing 10 men would probably take advantage of that? Yeah, I think I, I was expecting a sort of fairly stolid weekend of football, but it really has delivered, hasn't it? Yeah, it, certainly, it certainly has. Oh, in that sense, you didn't have many expectations, I right? Didn't, uh, you didn't yeah. have high hopes, no, yeah. right? Uh, Daniel, what about you? Did you have high hopes uh, when Nottingham Forest uh, took the lead after about a second <laughs> against Man United? Uh, every fo- every real football fan knows that you definitely can score too early. I wasn't aware that you could score two too early, but <laughs> we did do that as well. So, yeah. Remarkable stuff. Well, so, so many games to get through. What was your what was your favourite bit of the weekend, Daniel? I think the kind of most instructive bit was the fact that we have now had, I think, nine red cards in twenty nine Premier League games this season. I don't know if it's a kind of combination of this clamping down on descent and kicking the ball away. I think we've seen a few kind of yellow cards for that, but just yeah, it feels like the season started at this sort of mad pace. We've not mm. sort of eased our way in at all. It's like the start of that Liverpool-Newcastle game today, it just felt like a kind of November, late November game where both teams already know where they're at and they're sort of thrashing at each other. I really, yeah, I really like that we've started this sort of fairly insane pace. All right. Excellent. Tim, what about you? Um, I'm not going to pick a Wolves moment like I did last week because okay. it's so predictable. Um, Benji last week picked Mary Earps yelling F off as and it was a great moment I, right. yeah I, I kind of liked the sequel today with Van Dyke yeah uh, but he had a bit of sass to his uh, expletive towards the fourth official with a bit of a swishy finger in his direction um, yeah I, I don't know what it is about footballer swearing it just it just really captures the imagination he crossed the line didn't he, he and did it, cross sometimes the line. it's exciting to see that you don't know where it's going to finish no he, he he shouldn't have done it and mm. I, I'd imagine he'll face uh, further recriminations for you'd that you'd think wouldn't you so John, my, mine was seeing it again from that game. Tino Esprilla sat up there in the, not sat astride a dinosaur or a horse dressed as a dinosaur, or he would be dressed as a dinosaur. No, so actually not dressed as a dinosaur himself, but still sat there in, in St. James's. What, what about you? Well, my desires are unconventional, as you know. So I was quite excited by Bournemouth versus Spurs because two of my favourite managers matching off against each other. So Ange Postacoglu and Andoni Iraola. And I thought the game delivered quite a bit, actually. It was, it was a good matchup between, between two very interesting sides. So. Magnificent. Magnificent. All right. That going on down at the Vitality. By the way, was anybody else upset by Eddie Howe's choice of clothing <laughs> again this week? Or is that just me? No? Just no, me. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have noticed it if right. you hadn't. Um, okay. 
there's a lot to wind you up on that Newcastle bench without Eddie Howe's sartorial choices right, okay. being one of them, I think. All right, listen, perhaps you know what I'm talking about, but if not, let's just move on and actually check out the results. Uh, let's see, week three, three teams starting the weekend with perfect records, Brighton, Arsenal and Man City. Only cities have survived, albeit with a bit of a scare, away at Bramall Lane as they won 2-1 at Sheffield United. Brighton got beat 3-1 at home to West Ham. Arsenal were held by Fulham 2-2. Elsewhere, Chelsea got their first win of the season and only their second in 15. That was 3-0 on Friday at home to Luton. A Saturday, Man United went 2-0 down to Forest in the first four minutes, but came back to win 3-2. Spurs beat Bournemouth 2-0. Brentford and Palace continued their remarkable record of always drawing. And in the battle of the bottom two, Wolves beat Everton 1-0. Everton now lost their first three without scoring a single goal, and that's the first time that's ever happened to them. Sunday's other game saw Villa beat Burnley 3-1, and then at St James's Park, four. That Newcastle-Liverpool game, 2-1 to Liverpool, who played the majority of the match with 10 men. Extraordinary. Daniel, can we look at the table after three weeks? Not normally, but I think the fact that Manchester City have a lead and the bottom six already looks very bottom sixy All right. means that maybe. OK, that's the table. City are on top with a lead. The bottom six look bottom sixy. Interestingly, just outside the bottom six is Nottingham Forest. So I see you've selected, oh, okay. I meant selected seven, a, then. a very interesting <laughs> cut-off point. Right. Burnley and Luton with Everton in the bottom three. Uh, Sheffield United just above in 17th. None of the promoted sides have taken a point yet, although uh, Burnley and Luton have played a game fewer. Woo. Let's begin with Sunday afternoon's rip-roaring Newcastle-Liverpool game. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Elliot claimed it, Salah took it, rolled it up here for Nunez to win it! Wow, that's crazy! The Liverbird soars! Peter Drury there, summing up as only he can. An afternoon which saw Liverpool staring disaster in the face, really. Uh, an afternoon that looked like pretty damning evidence of their decline, but instead, perhaps, could it be a spark that will light a fire for Jurgen Klopp's men? 2-1 it finishes. It was Newcastle who took the lead uh, when Trent got caught out by Anthony Gordon. Virgil van Dijk was sent off only a couple of minutes after. But 10-man Liverpool turned the screws in the second half and either provided evidence of their indomitable spirit or did a bit of a smash and grab. You decide. Uh, Tim, let's begin with your take on this. Uh, as you sort of suggested, yeah, reports of Liverpool's demise have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, they're on a 14-game unbeaten run. It just, mm. feels, feels, just feels bonkers. I mean, I think we were all sort of writing them off at 1-0 and Newcastle were surging all over them. And Newcastle looked great and they were heading for six points from three games. And now they're on three from three games and they go to Brighton away next week. Then there's the international break immediately after and Newcastle could be looking like they've had a really poor start to the season coming so soon after that 5-1 demolition of Villa. And then they'll have Champions League to contend with. It's just amazing how a very small period of time in the second half, how it just completely changes how we think about these two teams and where they're at right now, really. Mm. What do you feel is the truth of this match? Um, I think w what we can say for definite is that Liverpool look utterly shambolic defensively at the moment and this is this is a theme which has carried on from last season and just isn't going away you know they were awful against Bournemouth last week uh, in the first half they could have conceded three in the first 10 minutes and then again today with all the mistakes they made in the first half with Alexander-Arnold and Van Dijk and Canate's out injured and suddenly they look very 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 suspect defensively again with no cover 
that's that's going to be an issue going forward. And this is this is of their own making because of, I assume, issues with with uh, three sporting directors in a year, which may become four in, eight, in 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 fifteen to eighteen months. And it looks like they've not really planned for the future very well. And we've talked about their midfield on, along those lines mm. for the past year. But I think defensively, they just look utterly shambolic. That said, you know, they, they, they kept the game alive so well. Um, they got a little bit fortunate. Newcastle hit the post. They wasted a few chances. But they dug in there. And then from the 17th minute onwards, when Newcastle made a triple sub, Anthony Gordon, who was man of the match for me, I thought he was phenomenal. Him and Isaac and Tonali all went off. And the momentum just changed at that point. And then obviously you've got two devastating finishes from from Nunes. And yeah, I think you, you certainly what you say about their spirit is certainly right. It's it's alive and well. All right. What does it say about Newcastle though, John? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question posed to them because if they're really going to want to challenge amongst the elite, then they have to be able to control games. And this is a, a game between two teams who are very much intense football, high counter-pressing and high-pressing teams they they like to you know win games through overpowering the opponent as soon as that red card happens that changes the situation and and you then have Newcastle in a, in a in in a situation where they then have to try and control the game and Liverpool actually in many respects in in a scenario which actually suits them right sitting deep you don't need to worry too much about losing the ball high up and getting turned over because mm. you're going to you're going to sit back and you know even if you do go forward and it doesn't happen then you're already down to 10 men and losing. So you then bring on Darwin Nunez, one of the, the most devastating, as you say, counter-attacking transitional players uh, in the world. Very chaotic, but it's the perfect situation for him. It's plenty of space for him to run into and uh, Liverpool able to able to find him through long balls and it, and it worked out for them. So yeah, it does raise questions about how Newcastle are going to look going forward. But Newcastle, very, very similar under Eddie Howe to what Liverpool were under early Jurgen Klopp in many respects. So, In, in, in which respects? Sorry, in, in, I can't remember that far back. In the respects that, again, this was a team who were very much about having a very functional midfield, right. who were able to dominate physically. Uh, they were doing a lot of the, the, the pressing and counter-pressing and, and looking for very direct attacking in order to generate goals. And the, the big questions with Klopp's Liverpool, early Liverpool, was, OK, this approach works, but it doesn't prepare you well for all games. And so we've seen the evolution of Klopp's Liverpool finding ways of getting creativity into that team. Do you get it through the fullbacks? Do you bring in more creative players into the midfield and risk having quite the physical intensity you have as well? And I think that's that's sort of where Newcastle are at. They're, they're going to be very good in a lot of games, but there's going to be some games which are going to pose them problems. And that's sort of a, the questions I think that's been raised for a lot of teams this weekend. It's, it's been a lot of play styles where some teams have come up against their bogey style uh, and and being turned over and I think that that's, that's going to be Newcastle's one what happens when a team sits deep and then hits them on the break right. they lose a lot of their edge uh, Am I right in thinking that none of the teams who went down to 10 men this weekend actually lost that would be full I mean come on <laughs> <laughs> Oh not there was one yeah, not your first. <laughs> there was one. Not your first. Oh, okay. yeah, there, was, there, there was one. All right. Just um, an accidental barb. On, on the subject of red cards and that, Newcastle uh, will, will no doubt look back at that moment when Trent kind of had a revenge shove on Gordon and maybe he should have gone for that. It was already on a yellow at the time. Daniel, what, what do you take away from this game? Yeah, well, regarding that, I think it was kind of one of those... It's one of those really awkward situations where I, I, I think the first yellow 
is now a yellow card, they say, because they say any show of dissent, any kind of thrown or kicking the ball away is, is a yellow card. And so Trent had been shoved over by Gordon in quite a dangerous yeah. fashion. He goes sliding off the pitch towards who knows what. And he did kind of throw it back onto the pitch because yeah. he was off. I think it was pretty touch and go. Mm. And I think I agree with the general sentiment, which is that if he hadn't have had the first yellow, he probably would have got the second yellow for the shove. But then I think if he isn't on the yellow and he doesn't get a yellow for the second one, people don't make as big a fuss of it because it wouldn't have immediately led to a red card. So I don't know. I think Trent will consider himself lucky. Was Virgil unlucky shortly after? No, No. no, he wasn't. No, I I know that that kind of engaging with anything on social media about refereeing decisions is like automatically bad faith because you're inevitably arguing with someone from a position of self-interest. But if you tackle someone by going through the man, it doesn't matter if you win the ball. And he did that. He kicked Isaac's leg first. And he was thrown goal, so that's a red card. It, it, it always has been. And, yeah, the, the the merciful thing is because Liverpool win, we probably won't have to hear about it all week. But, yeah, uh, yeah, it was a red card. It was a, a simple red card. I think I honestly think, I think Van Dijk lost his head hmm. about the goal and by, by Trent Alexander-Arnold making that mistake. And I think he was too hyped up and I think he wanted to make a point and kind of make a statement challenge. And he mistimed it because he's got his foot to the ball first. That Alexander-Arnold mistake, it was a Mo Salah pass, which he completely failed to control and didn't spot Gordon racing behind him. Gordon latches onto it and off he goes to the races and, and Newcastle are 1-0 up. How how long do you think Van Dijk is going to be out for? Will, will there be any, uh, a lengthy addition to his suspension for the way that he treated the officials? I think he will be charged with an extra offence, yes. Not just for the for refusing to leave the pitch after the AR call, not just for what he said to the referee, but also his kind of words and hanging around the tunnel with the fourth official. I think, yeah, he will receive an extra charge. I don't think it was Mitrovic level, so I don't think we're talking a kind of, you know, a, a huge addition. But let's say he gets one, I think, for the kind of dog so sending off is just a, an automatic one game red. So I think he probably gets that extended by one or two, yeah. Okay, they've got Villa next week. Villa, who were 3-1 winners. So they've bounced back nicely from their opening day defeat to Newcastle. 3-1 winners away at Burnley, Emery's side there. So I'm not quite sure who's going to be turning out of the back for Liverpool then. It'll be, what, Gomez and... That's a problem area, though. Yeah, Gomez and Matip and, you know... They they really miss Canate because he's the one that drops in so well when Trent Alexander Arnold push, pushes forward. But yeah, I just I just find it bizarre that this is an area they haven't addressed in the summer. I don't know why they wouldn't because they were so poor defensively last season and they haven't got enough cover. And Jurgen Klopp said even this week we need to be lucky with injuries at the back, and a lot of the defenders they've got are injury prone. So yeah, it's just it's just bizarre for a club who've recruited so well in recent years to to leave themselves so short at the back and so susceptible to these issues which mm. are very predictable we could see them all coming a mile off and yet 14 games unbeaten and <laughs> a fantastic result so. yeah indeed so indeed so anything else you want to say about this game i'm sure there's plenty i do think newcastle really messed this up i think the subs- triple substitution was too early definitely it felt like a 2-0 sub rather than a 1-0 sub but also even then the overlaps they had there was the one the big one was harvey barnes kind of breaking free and it was a, a, a proper two-on-one situation and all he needed to do was kind of pay a little kind of outside the foot pass um moving away from the goalkeeper and callum wilson was in and he just delayed and yeah they did seem to just as John referenced, kind of get caught between we need to kill this game off and play at our full intensity or we don't need to kill this game off because we've got control and we've got an extra man. If they'd have played at kind of nil-nil, you know, very much cliche of it's nil-nil, lads, but if they'd have played at that intensity when they're 1-0 up, they'd have killed the game off. 
Mm. Brighton away next week for Newcastle. Tim, you were going to... I just, I, I think it's worth it. pointing out. I mean, this felt like a real breakthrough game for Anthony Gordon. I, I really feel like he's going to be one to watch this year. I feel like he gets ignored a bit because his goals and assist numbers are so low, or they have been, but he's, he's always just needed to add a bit of finesse to his end product. I mean, took his goal really well today. As you said earlier, it was his through ball that led to the red card. But... I feel like the pennies dropped for him a little bit. He was he was player of the tournament at the Euros in the summer with with the under twenty ones, and I think maturity's definitely been a bit of an issue with him. But it feels like Eddie Howe would be a good manager to try and get it out of him. He's he's just got so many strings to his bow. I mean, he's very two footed. He's very quick. He's very direct. He's also very good defensively. He's a good team player. He's versatile. Plays in a lot of positions. But as we saw with the incident with Trent in the first half, you know, he's he's got he's one of those got something about him players slightly in the Rooney mould, you know, uh, very tenacious. I just think, yeah, un- under how um, I think he can have a real standout year this year. And, you know, he'll be talked about in England okay. conversations before long. When, when sure. he made the move to Everton for a 45 million or so, there were, I think, one or two people wondering why exactly Eddie Howe felt he was such a priority, but we're about to find out this season. I think so. Yeah, I mean, Ch- Chelsea, Chelsea were looking at him last summer. I think the suggestion was that Everton wanted 60 million at the time. And again, there were a lot of sort of noses turned up at that at that figure but you're paying for potential really in there and like I said it was it was the lack of end product that people were always looking at but he's, he's still a kid he's what 20 21 years old like I say he's got he's got so many attributes to his game he just needed to add a bit of finesse and I feel like he's doing that now I think he's a perfect player for Eddie Howe's Newcastle as well which means that you know you're going to be willing to pay that amount for him and it's starting to work out for him now perfect although not so much for Newcastle on this occasion very good Liverpool bounce back up to the top half of the table. Uh, Newcastle finish round three down in 13th. Crikey. Uh, Next up, we'll be talking about the upsets at the top. Hello, listeners. If you're someone who is just too busy for a regular length podcast in the morning, we have something for you. The Daily Football Briefing brings you bang up to date with the biggest football stories in just over 10 minutes. Whether it's David Ornstein on the latest big signing or Matt Slater on a takeover saga that won't go away. We'll bring you right up to speed all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all the usual platforms and make sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Three teams coming into the weekend on a perfect starts. Didn't work out for Brighton and Arsenal. It almost didn't for Man City at Sheffield United, the, the game that you were at this afternoon, Daniel. 
Yeah, it would. It, it reminded me uh, almost exactly of watching Forest play Man City last season when they drew one all and City were all over them. Um, in this game, I think first half Sheffield United had sixteen percent possession, no shots, no corners. So it was a. It was effectively, and that was a deliberate strategy, sacrificing the ball. Paul Heckingbottom saying, "If we're within one goal within the final fifteen minutes, we'll try and make it a fifteen-minute match to go for a point." And that's exactly what they did. Holly McBurney has not been fit yet this season, but came on for a little cameo and did what exactly what he was meant to do, which is kind of cause some, ruffle some feathers in City's defence. He found some space, he held up the ball and suddenly there was some panic and Carl Walker then makes a silly mistake and Sheffield United equalised. But the difference between this City and that City that I saw back in, I think it was January, February time, is that... They, they just look almost like they're offended when they concede a goal these days. Like, right, we need to put this right immediately. We need to make this right. We need to get every point that we've come for. And I think that will reflect a change in them this season. I don't think we're going to see this kind of marauding, free-flowing City. I think they're going to try and win the league by conceding 18, 20 goals, winning 1-0 or 2-0, or if they have to, 2-1 most weeks, and just... I mean, almost that grinds down the spirit of all the competitors even more, I think. But mm. yeah, I think that's how they'll do it. All right. It was Jaden. Is it Bogle? Yeah, yeah Bogle. Not, not yeah. Bogle. No. Jaden no. Bogle. That's a game of, yeah. often played by children, I believe. Oh, and adults. Uh, and adults, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, that was, uh, that was him uh, equalising, as you mentioned, Daniel, with the first league goal that City have conceded this season. They did almost concede another equaliser, massively and probably right at the death, though. Uh, yeah, that kind of what would you call it? A kind of kung fu kick, almost. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it would have been, but mm. yeah, I mean, that is a, a a central defender trying to do an acrobatic flying kick volley. Which so maybe we should be less surprised that it didn't go in. But <laughs> they were they were rattled to use social media parlance at the end of the game. Sheffield United and McBurney really forced the issue, and Heckenbottom said that after the game. You know, he said what we try and do is stay in games like this. And I think they've done that in, in every game so far, Sheffield United. They've shown more fight than I thought they'd do. They've also signed Cameron Archer, who was prolific in the Championship last season. And if he can do that again in the Premier League, he does give them a, a chance of staying up. Because the the forward options in the first two games were basically playing academy kids up front, which is, you know, it's not good enough. They've lost Billy Sharp, they've lost Ilman in DI, they've lost McAtee, they've lost... Tommy Doyle, they've lost so many players from last season that they just haven't replaced, that they needed more and they still do need more, I think. Well, right. their, their, team's, their team's worse than last season, right, when they got promoted, which is which is pretty unusual when, wow. when a team comes up. But yeah, as Daniel says, they've lost so many players. But it's it's a big few days for a few teams, hmm. but you feel Jeffrey Knight more than anyone because they have got a bit of money to spend. It's it's a big few days in the market for them. Friday, the transfer window closes. Hmm. All right. Uh, meantime, Saturday tea time, Saw a pretty extraordinary match down at the Amex where Brighton, who'd won both their opening fixtures 4-1, took on a West Ham team who, under David Moyes, think they were, even though they'd managed to beat Chelsea, a little bit of questions. We had Benji in here last week and he was saying yeah, he was very high on life, but at the same time, it didn't seem like he was particularly convinced by, by their pro- or about their prospects this, this season. But how would you describe what they did? To Brighton, I'd describe it as classic low block encounter. I think right, they did a sexy. yeah, they did a really nice job of it. I think that you know, there's few coaches 
who can pull that kind of thing off like David Moyes can. And uh, it's easy to come in here and, and rain on people's parade or whatever the, the, the cliche is um, when, you, when it comes to, to West Ham. But it's, it's, it's the same. We, we're in the, the upswing of the, of the David Moyes cycle, right, which is he has a particular play style that he can coach really well. Right. He gets his team playing in that play style really nicely, which is, you know, sit deep, you don't give away any space, and then you have some of the best players in the world at counter-attacking, right. get the ball up the pitch as quickly as you can, and you you score those goals. So that you can beat the top-of-the-table team with mm. 18% possession, and sure. in the first half, only 30, 30 passes completed, because you can do it so effectively on the break. Is the difference between this West Ham, then, and, say, the one that was struggling before, the fact that Lucas Paquetar is doing brilliantly, and Mikel Antonio is suddenly become this unstoppable kind of lone front man. I, th- I think he just knows his, he knows what he, he wants from his players, Moyes. And uh, th- the difficulty is, is that when you play well, playing this low block and counter, you get into the top half of the table. And then suddenly questions are like, how do you then compete with the elite teams? How do you consistently get into, you know, outside European places? Right. And they, what they do is they spend a lot of money. They bring in Skamaka, for example, and then right. struggle to fit him in. They, they brought in Pakata and they, it took a half a season for Moyes to work out where he wanted to, to use him. And I think the problem is, is that you then end up with, a, with a, that downswing of the Moyes cycle, which is we, they try and play more heavy possession-based football, similar to what we're talking about with Newcastle, right? You've got to, mm. you've got to be able to play in a way which allows you a bit more control in games. And he, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to be able to manage that. And so they have their, their upswing again, where they're like, they bring Mikel Antonio back in and they have all of these exciting players, side Ben Rahm, uh, Jared Bowen and they, they just play that really scintillating low block in counter football and I think on the one hand look it works and and, and it is attractive to watch uh, yeah. but the, on the other hand you do sort of wonder at what point they're going to stop coming out acting as though they're a newly promoted side and say we've been in the Premier League for a while now maybe our ambitions should be a little bit higher I think there's room. It's a broad church, the Premier League. It is. When it comes to play style, I think obviously there's no right or wrong way of playing football, right. whatever. But I think if you know if, if Man City were to come out and play low block and counter, I think yeah. that would be a bit of a waste of the resources that they have available. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel as though West Ham are, are sort of trespassing into that realm a really? little bit. With their got, squad. Yeah, their squad is... You, you could play better football with, with their squad. Maybe like, not having, this season, but like previous seasons. Having so. said that, that the uh, Jared Bowen goal would, oh. that would be hard to beat by any team that's so, that's so good you'd, you'd want to be in that away end wouldn't you as a West Ham fan you know you've had you've had 10 passes all game <laughs> and then it's a, a stunning goal it's perfect yeah. to that. and I think it's Antonio wins the ball at left back doesn't he mm. and then finds Ben Rama and Ben Rama has, has nobody there to the extent that he actually stops and stands still and waits for Bowen uh, to make his run into the box and yes yeah, it's, it's a perfect pass and a gorgeous finish uh, yeah I, I loved it I thought it was a fantastic mm. goal mm. I, also it's it, and John kind of mentioned it but it's the, it is the perfect way to beat Brighton I think mm. since since the start of last season the six games they've had the most possession in which is Everton, Brentford, West Ham at home, Forest, Palace, Brentford away. They've taken two points in those six games and they've conceded 17 goals so if you can soak up pressure and you can use that counter-attack and we saw you know, we saw at the end of last season the way that Everton kind of just almost felt like they were dismantling a, a model in front of your eyes because they were able to just pick apart Brighton. Forrest did it again towards the end of the season. Morgan Gibbs-White and Brennan Johnson and Aaron E on counter-attack. You, you can do that against Brighton if you are able to soak up the pressure. West Ham went to Brighton last season and tried to do exactly the same and lost 4-0 because they didn't have anything on the counter and they weren't able to soak up the pressure. They had Danny Ings up front instead of Antonio and he wasn't doing any pressing, he wasn't doing any running, he wasn't able to do anything on the counter. So it's, it's all very well having the strategy, but yeah, you need 
you need to be able to execute that properly, and that's exactly what they did. If they if they're now on the Moyes uptick uh, because they got rid of Francis Danskamaka and and that kind of thing, what happens when you bring Kudus Mo, Mo Kudus into this? into this group. Daniel, you're grimacing already. Yeah, it's very exciting because the story of West Ham's, well, the first half of West Ham's 22-23 was Moyes trying to fit in all these new players and then eventually realising that maybe it's easy to just sack that off and do what I know and make the players fit the system rather than the system fit the players. Um, Kudus is a kind of free-form jazz attacking midfielder who is brilliant to watch, but I don't quite know how that fits with uh, maybe he kind of farms him out left instead of Benrama. Maybe he just comes in off the left, and they they do get a bit more, you know, commit even more to that counter-attacking threat. He just plays as a counter-attacker. I think the big question with when you're playing for David Moyes mm. is how much you commit to that system because as we've been saying you know 31 passes in the first half uh, you're not going to see the ball very much at all and I think this was one of the big problems they had with Skamaka which was he's a guy who has the technique to be able to hold the ball up wants to be involved in hold up play etc and you're, you're playing him in a system where you're like when you look at what Mikhail Antonio does it's like do a channel run we're going to we're going to yeet the ball into one of the wide areas mm. you're going to chase it wide and then we have these with these attacking you know rotations that we run you lay the ball back to four and else he's going to try and find Bowen on the other side those are very few and far between those moments so you mm. spend a lot of time doing a lot of running off the ball and you have to take your chances when they come so I think there's a, a lot of elite players don't like going into a system like that because they just don't see the ball as much so I think that's part of the of the struggle of bringing in those much better players into a moist system mm. all right uh, West Ham romping up the table to second uh, just behind Man City although on same points as Spurs Liverpool and yes, Arsenal, what happened Saturday afternoon, John, between the Gunners and Fulham, who scored, after 57 seconds, the fastest goal of the season so far? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's the same old story for Arsenal, who've now, I think, Charlie will correct us on this because he knows all of the details, but Arsenal have now conceded in three games out of the last nine in the first minute of games, Ooh. which is becoming a bit of a, a problem for them. But again, it was a defensive goal. To go with Lady Bracknell, that sounds like it might be a bit of an issue. As a tactician, I can I can confirm that it's not good to right. concede the first goal in a minute. But again, a calamitous goal. Which goal would you be more worried about? The first goal that Fulham scored or the second? <sighs> Yeah, I mean, the the second goal was a goal scored from a corner kick and Arsenal have been a little bit frail at set pieces as well. Obviously, by this point, Fulham are down to 10 men. So, yeah, you don't want to see that one either. But I think the big difficulty when you're playing, you're playing against a team, Fulham have been poor so far this season. They've conceded, I think, after maybe Manchester United, the most box shots out of the two games before that. And they've been, um, they've been really quite abject. To give them that goal straight away from the beginning gives them something to sit back and defend. It right. means that they so don't need was- to try and... This was Pekasaka passing back, yeah. nominally towards. Was it Thomas Partey he was aiming at? I, th- I think it was maybe Saliba. I'm not sure. Oh, what, okay. I'm sure not what was not sure what was happening, but obviously right. gets intercepted by Pereira, who who then is able to sort of play the ball. I mean, a very weird shot. It's it's well worth checking out if you get the chance because it's one of the weirdest goals that was scored this weekend. But mm. he he plays a, a fairly tame shot, but Ramsdale's got his legs all wrong and so just ends up not being able to stop it. So yeah, a calamitous start and Arsenal are 1-0 down. Right. Now, there's been a lot said about the way that Mikel Arteta has changed the system mm-hmm. uh, with the arrival of uh, Declan Rice, uh, party's new role as this kind of uh, adaptable, uh, what, how would you define it? Right, the, an inverted the, fullback, I'd Inverted say. fullback, yeah. yeah. And also, of course, Kai Havertz coming in trying to fit all these pieces together. Um, when party and Havertz went off the field, did Arsenal get better? 
I think they they did. They went back to their a, a similar similar system to what they used last time around. So Zinchenko came on. And I think that was really important because uh, the way they've been playing until this point has been using Declan Rice usually as a as a pivot. So the player who the build up is going to mm. move around, uh, and then they've been moving um, Thomas Partey from right back into in the, the center of the field, and they've really been struggling. I think to actually progress the ball through the middle of the field, and there's a, a number of reasons for that. One of them is that I think Declan Rice is not used to playing as a sort of classic pivot for an elite team where you have to do a lot of receiving the ball with your back to goal under Did, pressure. He didn't do that at West Ham? Not, no, not really. Oh. Um, and he's a, he's a player who you want to try and get on the ball facing down the field because he's absolutely fantastic in those scenarios. So what they've been doing is, is sort of drifting him into wide areas or deeper to, to make it easier for him to receive the ball. And that changes the way that you're building up. Um, right. They brought Zinchenko back in when they when they made those changes um, and returned to to the sort of four three three that we saw before. And Fabio Vieira came, came on as well right, for yeah. for Kai Havertz and he forces the breakthrough. You know, he sets up the the yeah. the, the, the equaliser, the first Arsenal goal. He wins a penalty by going hit, hitting the byline, gets gets taken out. They they score that penalty. And then uh, Arsenal very quickly score a goal, but right. it's a little bit controversial because Calvin Bassey, the Fulham centre back, goes down in, uh, injured. Arsenal play on and, and end up scoring through the the space where you would usually expect the the right uh, the left sided centre back to be. So uh, that was a lovely finish by Eddie Nketiah, uh, and and it looks at this point you know Arsenal two one up, um, and then shortly after Calvin Bassey gets sent off, so two one up down to ten men. Surely Arsenal are gonna, gonna bring it home, but. But it, but instead, justice perhaps served, you know, after mm. after they didn't put the ball out for Bassi when uh, Jean Palinia equalises for, for Fulham. I'm just going to uh, mention a, a post here from Sam Pappas uh, from the disgruntled section of our mailbox. He says, what was the point in signing Havertz? Mm. I didn't understand the signing at the time and I still don't. Maybe you guys can un- enlighten me. Uh, Daniel, have you got a, a view on this? Well, I heard Arteta say after the game, and he was already defending him and saying, look, he'll come good, he'll come good, which is a little bit of a worry three weeks in. But he also said he gets in great areas and the ball doesn't arrive to him, almost kind of blaming the players around him. And that's not really what it looks like at all. It looks to me like Havertz is in a more reserved position, which means he should be able to get the ball a lot more and drive forward with it. That's just not happening. Martin Odegaard has had 107 touches of the ball in the final third so far this season, and Havertz has had 59 it feels to me like Martin Erdegaard has been so dominant on that midfield that he is still doing everything he w- wants to do, and rightly so, because he's been brilliant at it over the last 14 months. And Havertz is just a kind of superfluous figure. It doesn't help that he's had three different left-backs behind him in three games, definitely not. It doesn't help that it's a new position at a new club, but I disagree with Arteta that he, he's getting into the right positions and just not finding the ball. I don't think he's getting in the right positions. I don't think he's... He's not really offering anything. And and the other thing is that when he's getting the ball, hmm. the grumbles about him at the, at the Fulham game by Arsenal fans is that when he's getting the ball, he's not turning forward like Saka does or Odegaard does or Martinelli does and driving forward. He's playing the ball back and kind of slowing down moves rather than quickening up. And that's not what they bought him for. They paid £65 million for a playmaker to be kind of electric at those transitions, which is what Arsenal are really good at. And he seems to be slowing down the game a bit. All right. Well, three games entrust the process. Yes. And, and all that. Um, we should mention that Fulham could have won this had Adama Traore... Had he, had he dived. Oh, mm. really? Would you say that was? Well, yeah. I, I was going to say, because when, when he goes bombing off down the field, right, normally... He's never going to score, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. I, think, I don't think anyone ever felt the remotest <laughs> hint of danger. 
No. But he could have gone down. I can't remember who, who the defender it is. Was but Saliba, was it? Saliba sticks a leg out and mm. Traore still tries to score. So, yeah, he hasn't learned his lesson. But mm. I, I, I just, I don't know. Love, still love watching him in, in full flow, in full roadrunner, meep meep mode from one end of the pitch to the other. Very nice. Um, so shame you didn't refer to uh, Jao Paulinho by his full name, by the way. I don't know if you saw that on Twitter. Oh. Uh, Fulham tweeted out that he was their man of the match. He's actually got eight names. Okay. Uh, so they tweeted out in full. Uh, Jao Maria Lobo Alves Palhares Costa Palhinha Gonçalves is your man of the match. Wow. When his dad was mad with him, he must take about half an hour to <laughs> That sounds like that might be like some Portuguese football team from you yeah, know, the mid-80s where you just name after every player. Yeah. All right, that's what happened at the Emirates. But what about Goodison Park? We'll discuss Saturday's Everton Wolves clash next. The Premier League is back and the Athletic Football Podcast is your essential football companion this season. Whether it's dissecting Chelsea's astronomical spending, assessing Spurs in a post-Harry Kane era, or the growing impact of Saudi Arabia's riches, we'll be there four days a week this season as we get to the heart of the biggest stories. Join me, Ayo Akinwalere, and the Athletics' esteemed roster of writers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the usual podcast spaces. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. Tonetto, the angle ball, and it's turned in! Kalajic! He's only been on the field a short amount of time, but that's what you call an impact substitute. Oof, it's another three o'clock game, this cruelly denied uh, to the uh, British viewing public, or at least the law-abiding ones. What did they miss? Wolves winning 1-0 uh, with a goal from Sasha Kaladzic in the 87th minute. His first goal, I think, was that not for for Wolves? Yeah, he missed uh, a year with an ACL injury. Right. So was, uh, yeah, very Got injured on his yeah. debut, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Gary O'Neill's first win as Wolves manager. Oh, Duncan Alexander, who likes a big man, and I, I think he'll feel comfortable with me saying that, saying Sasha Kaladzic will be this season's iconic big man. Uh, what do you want to talk about from this game? We'll all have seen the goalkeeping. Pickford on that Kaladzic. And and uh, Jose Saar on that uh, Everton chance the other end. Uh, remarkable. Daniel, 
I was going to say, I've not seen a save like that Jose Sar one. It felt like a new type of save where it was... I don't know how he manages to get the power with his hand to push it over the bar. It's like he's, it's like he's just flicking a balloon up into the air rather than a, an actual football. It's incredible hand strength to push it over the bar. Yeah, it was, it was very, very nonchalant. I mean, he's, he's almost in the back of the net as he just, yeah, flicks the ball over the bar. And there was two in very quick succession. Pickford mm. just made an, an astonishing save, as, as, as he tends to do. Um, but then was, yeah, completely uh, nowhere for the for the winning goal, which Kaladzic sort of backs in, doesn't even have to head it. So, yeah, from a Wolves point of view, um, it's justice for Stefan Meyerhofer, who is, who's the last beanpole Austrian striker who wore Wolves colours and was cruelly sent off at Goodison Park in 2009 when he just he just sort of tickled Tim Howard and got sent off. I'm still not over it. Um, <laughs> so I just feel like it's justice, really. Okay, very nice. As for Everton, they've now lost at home to both Fulham and Wolves. Uh, they've also now lost their first three games of the season without scoring a single goal, which is the first time that's ever happened. They've had 43 shots, 18 of them on target. Uh, eight of them are what uh, optical big chances. EFC Stato pointing out that it's not just the first team either. The malaise runs deep at this club. First team's record after three games of the season is loss, loss, loss. The under-18s is loss, loss, loss. The under-21s is loss, draw, loss. What about Everton throwing Michael Keane on as an emergency striker in the 90th minute? It'll make Beto and... Chimiti feel better about themselves I think seeing if that that's the only option that we've got to replace there is something extraordinary about Everton they do not have much money to spend we shall say euphemistically but they are spending 43 million or, or will have spent 43 million pounds on two non-international cap Portuguese forwards which feels like something of the gamble I think it's fair to say Beto you may have seen more of the me James at, at Udinese um, but I think it's fair to say that over the last few years we've begun to question how prolific strikers in Italy may fare in the Premier League. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's a huge ask. They they are creating chances, that's the positive spin. And they've still got Jack Harrison and Dwight McNeil to come back in from injury. And if they keep doing that and it allows Danjuma to go back out ride rather than playing as this kind of nonsense centre forward who doesn't touch the ball, it might help just having a presence there, almost as a Kaladzic where you just stick Beto there and hope everyone around him works. But the, the really disappointing thing is that the midfield has gone to pieces. Amadou Anana is half the player he was at this time last season. I was really excited when he started Everton and he just looks to have fallen off a cliff and Idrissa Gay the same. And that's the big worry because, yeah, with Dice you expect that kind of midfield industry and defensive solidity, if not being great goal scorers and they've not really got any of the three at the moment. All right. Well, they've got another tense game coming up next weekend against one of the sides down there at the bottom end of the table with them. They are at Bramall Lane Saturday lunchtime. Adam James says, would an Everton relegation be beneficial for the club? Um, I think that's a hard case to argue, Adam, although there are circumstances in which, I guess, what you call a hard reset has benefits down the line, but the financial implications yeah. would be catastrophic. How how worried, I know we're three weeks into the season, but based on what you've seen so far, uh, anybody, uh, how worried should Everton be? I think that we talked before about how Everton have, they've just not been finishing well at the moment. Mm. Uh, I think around five expected goals they've put up so far in their three games, which is a decent rate of return for a, for a team who are looking to avoid relegation. None of those expected goals has resulted in an actual goal, which is obviously worrying. So I guess the big question is whether or not that's 
just a blip or whether or not it's going right. to prove to be uh, a, a long-running saga. But it, it's worth noting that Neil Mope is an Everton player and uh, mm. wherever he goes, there his teams do seem to have these expected goal underperformances. So uh, it could be something to do with that. So maybe these new strikers will, will solve the issue. We'll hold fire and see how that works out for them. Daniel, let's turn to a slice of history. Uh, Nottingham Forest's visit to Old Trafford, where they became the first side ever, at least in the Premier League, to be 2-0 up inside four minutes of a game and yet go on to lose. The previous best, I use that word advisedly, was Ipswich, <laughs> who went 2-0 up after five minutes against Charlton in faraway 2002 and also went on to lose. Uh, there were positives here for Forest, even though they lost. There were negatives for Man United, even though they won. How would you sum it all up? Yeah, but... Pretty much that. Uh, shout out for Taiwo Awonyi, who has become the first Forest player since, I think, 1957 to score in seven straight league games. Woo. To do that in the Premier League and against, that includes games against Arsenal, Chelsea and Manchester United is a remarkable feat. And he looks bizarrely like Forest have the informed centre forward in the country right now, which is not something I'd have thought of 15 months ago. Um, but yeah, their, their central defensive issues continue to haunt them. Um Willie Bolly, Scott McKenna and Joe Worrell is probably the weakest central defensive system in the Premier League outside of the promoted clubs, I think. And Worrell got sent off, so he'll be suspended. And McKenna got injured, so he's taken off. They have signed Murillo, uh, a Brazilian central defender from Corinthians, who that's Natalie Jedra's beloved Corinthians. So she may be able to tell us something about him, but I absolutely cannot. All right. Um, it feels a gamble that Felipe's injured. If they don't get that sorted, then they will continue to struggle. The, the difference is that they're not getting hammered in games this season. They lost by one to Arsenal and one to Man United. Fair enough. Uh, Man United, who apparently have decided the answer to their issues, is some form of former Chelsea left-back, either Cucurella or Marcus Alonso, I was hearing. which Did, did I dream that? Maybe I dreamt that. <laughs> Listener, I apologise in that case. But uh, what what was your what was your verdict on them, Daniel? I, I think that the the one thing we expected from them in a positive way was some cohesion because there's not been an awful lot of on pitch upheaval over the summer, and yet they just look really compartmentalised. It was basically Bruno Fernandes stick for most of for most of the game against Forest. The defence looks loose. Casemiro is getting overrun in midfield which was happening when Mount was playing next to him, which wasn't a surprise, but was still happening when Ericsson was next to him, which maybe was a surprise. Um, and the front three, I mean, Anthony is one of the more remarkable £80 million signings I've seen live. Uh, Anthony Martial feels like he's been there for like half my life at this point. Uh, and Marcus Rashford slightly worryingly looks back to that slightly cut down, on in, down in the dumps 2021-22 self so they need an injection there Rasmus Hjoland obviously will be back from injury at some point which will help but yeah they just look really really odd even uh, uh, John will know more about this than me but even how they're setting up it feels like they're setting up to control games and yet they're leaving two on one from a corner in the second minute of a match which just seems like pretty basic stuff to not do uh, and defending badly from set pieces it just feels really weird and yet you know they've got six points out of nine so who cares I suppose well indeed John yes or no are you a Ten Hag believer I think Ten Hag's a great coach. I think there's some weird things going on with Manchester United. There's been lots of questions raised about their their fitness profile and, and what they've been doing over the summer. Whether or not their their trips to various I've been to they've been to the US. I think they went to Norway. They went 
somewhere else as well, I can't remember, but um, questions about whether or not they prepared in the best way for this season. I think that sort of bears out with what we've seen so far because, as Daniel says, it, I went into this season thinking, well, they've had Ten Hag now for a whole season. They brought in players in positions where they wanted to. They've had a good window, according to themselves, in terms mm. of what they wanted to get. And they've got that continuity, which you expect to result in in better better performances. And it just hasn't happened at all. And um, yeah, they look, they look like they can't con- control games at all, but also look very toothless going forward. I thought in, in this game, um, I, I looked at, again at the under lying numbers and they only put up about an expected goal of open play chances they relied on a set piece and a, and a penalty for for two of their goals so lovely set piece though i yeah, did enjoy was, that it was nice it was one of those ones which seems a little bit unfair because i think casemiro was like offside for one phase of play but then becomes back onside because right. it's played okay. by someone else which if i was a defender i think i would feel as though that mm. was that was very much a set against me but, but they basically took the long route round the, yeah the, they the, played it one side and then back across to the other and then yeah. bruno fernandez heads the ball back across but mm. they very, they really struggle to generate things from open play, which is, I think, going to be an issue when there are a lot of teams in the league, like Sheffield United, who we talked about, who are going to be happy to not even attempt to attack for 75 minutes and say, come and break us down. We're going to try and sit deep and then play that 15-minute game at the end. Very good point. All right, next up, uh, the other things that happen in the Premier League and also the football story that everyone's talking about. Hi everybody, I'm Danny Kelly, host of the Athletics' dedicated Spurs podcast, The View from the Lane. Join me, Charlie Eccleshare, James Moore, Tim Spears and Jack Pitbrook for what promises to be yet another rollercoaster season in N17. Will Ange Postacoglu bring back attacking football to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? Every Monday and Thursday, we'll bring you top analysis from the best journalists in the game, as well as razor-sharp insight, it says here, and of course, all the usual View from the Lane gaffes and gags. Come on, you Spurs. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And through it all, we'll play the way we want to. With big edge past the car glue. We'll run right or wrong. Yeah, well, there you go, listener. Last week I did this. They're loving Angie instead. <laughs> and that's Robert. Who did it better? Not for me to say, but uh, fair to say that uh, Postacoglu-mania is, uh, is running wild on both sides of the Atlantic. Also, if you uh, do get the chance to check out uh, the film of uh, Robbie there singing I'm loving Big Angie instead, uh, it's quite remarkable how much he looks like Stephen Patrick Morrissey. Yeah, I actually, when I first clicked on it, I thought, oh, is it going to be, oh, I'm loving. <laughs> that was less successful. Anyway, uh, heaven, there you heaven go. Heaven knows we're not miserable now. <laughs> <laughs> very, very nicely done, uh, Daniel. Now, oh, we're going to talk about Spurs perhaps a little bit in a second or two. Actually, why not? Let's do it now. Tim, you went to the trouble of watching this game. Yes, I We've did. We've not got long. No, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's be, yeah. I, they were just great again, you know. Yeah. Just, they, you know, 
fans singing we've got our Tottenham back and there's such a vibrancy and a feel good factor yeah. around Spurs at the moment well we had all that before anything mm. new this time a 2-0 win at, at, at Bournemouth well it's interesting how uh, so they've, they've scored six goals so far with five different scorers and an own mm. goal no one's actually chipping in Son and Richarlison haven't scored yet right, which, is, which right. is bizarre those are the two you'd expect so Nifty Palms says Son should play as a striker and Richarlison should be out on the left wing what do you think Richarlison would be more effective when Kuliseski hits the byline as well as his strength in brackets and the Son Madison combo works better in congested space that add up to you uh potentially i i, I don't see how just swapping them over will right. solve solve their issues to be honest but right. the, 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 there are others stepping up a, a doggy looks looks great at left back in madison and you know madison madison who was the big injury scare before this game mm. but instead came in and bossed it again yeah left the ground in a protective boot last weekend yeah. and then just came in and said what were you worried about the boot was in his, his his leg it was he wasn't in the boot the whole of him it was just the boot on <laughs> yeah. his foot yeah uh, magnificent all right well there you go that's your Bournemouth Spurs uh, roundup oh John you're a big fan of James Madison's post-game interviews did he say anything after this one just a really insightful guy really really enjoyed mm. listening to hear listening to hear him talk listen to him talk after games uh, just very very willing to say what he's thinking um, th- I think maybe that did for him a, a few times when he was at Leicester and mm. things weren't going well but um, clearly thinks about the game in, 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 a, in a bit bit of depth so always recommend trying to catch him if he is a if he's doing the post-match. Brentford Crystal Palace was a 1-1 draw, uh, and it always has been a draw between them. That's nice. What a goal from Kevin... Schada. Schada. means shame in German. Is that right? Mm. Right. From a Freiburg So, because on, on match of the day, they called him Schade, but was that, was that entirely so that they could then make goals about yeah. smooth operators and yeah. that okay but it's Sharda right okay and then uh, Joaquin Anderson uh, got his first goal in a year uh, there you go uh, the other game which happened all the way back on Friday was Chelsea's first win under Maurizio Pochettino 3-0 uh, this was against Luton the return of Raheem Sterling yeah the return of Raheem Sterling yeah it's great I mean he, his, his, his post-match interview was absolutely joyous well, what um, did he say he just kind of said, I, I, I'm not ready to fall out of love at football at 28. I've still got a, another career, half career to have, and I intend to have it. And he also made the point that last year he felt like he was basically being given the ball off a fullback and 70 yards from goal. And, you know, the stats suggest that he's, he's already having, you know, he's taking on more players. He's touching the ball in the box more. He's touching the ball in the final third more. He looks happier. He's taking his shots closer to goal. And, and this, you know, he didn't need to ever reinvent the wheel with Raheem Sterling. He, he was good at picking up the ball, driving at players, when he was confident he would take them on. If he wasn't that confident, you just got him in the box because Pep Guardiola taught him to be a kind of poacher finisher if you needed that. It it was quite simple. And Chelsea threatened to break that over the course of last season. And I really hope they haven't because um, for his sake and for England's sake, he's he's a brilliant winger and he's one of the most consistent wingers, which is remarkable because... The whole thing about him for the first half of his career was that he was inconsistent, and he—he's simply not. Uh, if you give him, play him in the right position, and give him enough of the ball, he will create chances. It was also nice to see Nicholas Jackson saying after the game, like, "I love Raheem. I love what he's doing. I love the balls he puts into the box for me." And that genuinely looks like the closest thing that Chelsea will have to a decent strike force this season until they inevitably spend £80 million on another striker and drop Sterling for Mudrick in a couple of weeks. Magnificent. Uh, speaking of Sterling, I really enjoyed the Sky pop-up graphic during the game, uh, which said, in the Premier League era, Luton has spent £30 million on transfers, uh, Chelsea £3 billion. Um, <laughs> I lo- You can't make football too simplistic for me. I, I also I do it. like, 
Sky doing that completely straight face as if to say, gosh, a lot of money rushed into our game at one point in time, didn't it? How weird <laughs> that was. When were Luton last in the top league? Was it 1992? That's odd. <laughs> But well, there you go. That was uh, selected bits of the Premier League weekend. Uh, Tim, we've got uh, a European show coming up on Tuesday, uh, touching on the big stories around Europe. But there's none bigger, pretty much anywhere right now, than the continued fallout, the escalating explosion that's followed uh, the kiss from the Women's World Cup final. You wrote a kind of Zapruder tape-esque breakdown of those moments but of course what's a lot of people are bringing up is the fact that that was only the kind of the spark that that blew everything up but you know the 15 players last year were going to the federation and presenting similar uh issues or similar complaints back then and you know they weren't listened to back then and it's spain kind of were able to bring in another team sorry i'm rambling on here but it, this story is is now just the biggest thing in football but yeah there's, there's so much to it there's, mm. uh, and it and it develops very quickly every single day i mean just over the weekend you know rubial is suspended by fifa well he had this um, extraordinary press conference where like you know kendall roy he was meant to go along and bow <laughs> his head and instead he said no voy a dimitir he went full Wolf of Wall Street, no? Yeah, just 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 doubling down on 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 defending himself. And then the FA put out a statement accusing Hermosa of uh, of lying and saying they're going to sue her just, uh, again. We're through the looking glass. Now. Yeah, even even stronger than accusing, they're just saying she, she is a liar, and and we will prove that she's a liar. It's absolutely extraordinary. And right. then, and then uh, uh, posting these these screenshots of 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 just before the the moment when they're. When um, he's lifted into the air or jumps into her arms, and 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 it's it's an astonishing story. It's remarkable how it's grown from one moment into this scandal, which, as you say, uh, spread out into debates on things you know far wider and far bigger than just football. Right. Um, but I, I I just I find it crazy to think that this could all have been uh, stopped very quickly last week with a with a contrite apology or at least some recognition of what's happened. So Kiva on Thursday was making the point that it's a is how unpleasant it is that following the success of, of this team that we're all talking about this kiss. But yeah. in some ways, I, um, is it a naive thing to say that, as you say, it could all have been kind of swept under the carpet as other things sounds like it, it might have been. The good thing about what's happened is that it does seem to completely set fire to a, a kind of a, it just spark this complete re revolt from a lot of people in the game, not just the women's side of the game, but predominantly, that they don't want this kind of thing anymore. Yeah, I completely agree. And yeah, it, it could have been nipped in the bud a week ago, but I'm glad it wasn't because it's really shown up the Spanish Football Federation. And well, you know, when you consider, yeah, that the madness of what happened with Vilda, who's still the last person standing here somehow, by the way, there's resignations and sackings all over the place and he's, he's still there. Um, but obviously it all hint, well, more than hints at this quite horrific, toxic culture, um, which is now having a very bright light shone on it um, mm. and, and looks extremely ugly under that light. FIFA have suspended Rubiales from all football-related activity, this is the head of the Spanish FA, for 90 days. They've also uh, ordered him and the Spanish FA to not try and contact Homoza or anyone in their close in her close environment. Essentially, they they've given the Spanish FA an asbo. Yeah, they have. I, I, I and and that is genuinely unprecedented. It's extraordinary. Uh, I, I do like uh, as Tim mentions this. George Vilda still kind of there. I uh, you know I was at that his post match press conference and it was. 
amid some competition, it was the smuggest performance I've ever seen of this man kind of wearing his medal as if to say, he, you know, he's not doing the press conference with the player, but by himself. And it was a kind of two fingers to the system, two fingers to the critics. And to an extent at the time, you understood that because rightly or wrongly, and, you know, on there, my colours to the mast, wrongly, um, he is in this position of immense authority and there are accusations about his behaviour. And over the course of this week, he's had to, He's had all of his staff resign. He's had all of, I think, 81 players say they won't play for the national team again. He's had his guy, Rubiales, the, his, his, his big, you know, his big acolyte, he's been forced out by FIFA. And then literally 24 hours ago, he said, he kind of comes out and says, oh yeah, Rubiales' behaviour was unacceptable and goes against all of my own values. To which, frankly, the Spanish football community certainly Spanish women's football community just laughs their head off because the whole point is that there's these accusations of a toxic culture which clearly involves him as well mm. Rubiales is still is still Spanish FA president as we speak yes it is a little bit harder than just why haven't they sacked him I, I read something the other day that the, the the necessary processes because of how that body is formed means there there isn't as simple as some, there isn't someone to just sack him. It take, will take the effectively the 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 Ministry for Sport in Spain to organise that, and I th- I suspect that will happen before long. Hmm. But I don't think we're going to get a mayor culprit. It's gone too far now. That's the that's the maddest thing is that he he cannot do the apology now because he's been so forthright so many times that even that wouldn't work. You can't say, oh yeah, sorry for that time and that time and that time and that time that said I wasn't wrong. I actually was wrong. It doesn't work like that. Right. I mean, just to kind of maybe finish off, that was the thing that when those 15 players said that they would never play or that they wouldn't play under a builder, they never specified what the complaints were. And I think a lot of people assumed it was something to do with the manager, but it does seem to be in a broader climate of of the way that people were behaving to them. Yeah, um, and, and, the, and the underlying point here is that maybe if this lesson teaches us anything or this kind of fast teaches anything, it's that maybe we should listen to those people the first time they speak up rather than brushing everything under the carpet, hoping it goes away, calling up extra players. You know, It'll be fine because we're going to win the World Cup. Maybe that isn't enough. Maybe if we listen to people at the start, then we'll unearth this toxic culture and the game will ultimately be the better for it. All right. All the latest on that. And loads more when we return in our European edition, which is out on Tuesday. We'll have Alvaro, uh, James Horncastle, we'll have uh, Rafa and Jules too. Uh, all here in the studio, I think, to discuss such diverse topics as Jude Bellingham, becoming the first player since Cristiano Ronaldo to score in his first three games for Real Madrid. We'll talk about the latest from Italy and Germany, where Harry Kane's done it again, is he, John? Today? Yeah, I think a penalty and a goal. A penalty today. and yeah. another, yeah, nice. All right, and other things too. That's all in the Totally Football Show European edition. Do join us for that, for this Totally Football Show. I think that, that brings us to the end of our time slot. Tim, anything you want to pitch in? No, you're all done. John, excellent stuff. Many thanks to you. And Daniel there, lovely to see you back home. Lovely to be back, James. I'm sure. Listen, thank you for being with us and producer Charlie too. Assuming he's still there. Yes, he is. Good. And uh, we'll be back on Tuesday. Yeah, have a great time till then. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.